Amen. Good morning. I want to add my welcome to Sharon Levinson this morning. It's great to see you home, Sharon. God bless you. I'll give you a hug later, okay? All right. And uh, Bill, I want to thank you for coming up and representing Awana Ministries. This church has had Awana well over 25 years, and God has used it greatly in our midst. So thank you for being with us as well. Well, dear ones, we are in the middle of a series uh, simply called Facets of Jesus. And it's a very simple concept, a very simple idea, a very simple goal. The goal is simply to hold up the biblical Jesus Christ and to allow his brilliance to be seen. Jesus is like a diamond. The more ways in which you turn and consider and look at him, the more glimpses of glory and grace and beauty and love you behold. And the goal is this, that we would simply fall in love with him. You know, God doesn't want your money. He doesn't want your songs. He doesn't want your service. He wants your affection. Because he knows if he has your heart, he gets all the rest of you to boot. And it's for the right reasons. It's out of love for him. And in a very real way, that's really what the goal of this thing called the gospel of Jesus Christ is all about. Um, There's a book I'd like to recommend to you if you're into reading and you want to go deeper in your understanding of your faith. It's called Gospel, very simply. Rediscovering the Power that Made Christianity Revolutionary. And the man who wrote this is J.D. Greer with a forward by Tim Keller. So I want to highly recommend this to you. Elisha texted me from Moody Bible Institute this past week. He said, hey, Dad, there's a guy who's a junior on our floor in the dorm. He goes, he's like one of the best read guys I've ever met. He reads all the time. And he just finished the book called Gospel by J.D. Greer. He said it is the best book he's ever read. So I want to highly recommend it to you. I've read it. It is amazing, and it will help you to grow in your understanding of the gospel and why it's even given to us. Uh, just a little snippet, and this is, this is important. The gospel of God's grace to us in Jesus, according to J.D. Greer, has done its work in us when we crave God more than we crave everything else in life. You see, it's not just to save us. Hallelujah, it saves us. But the gospel shows us a God who is so magnanimous and generous and loving and glorious that we actually fall in love with him. We crave him, we desire him, we long for him. And it says this, more than everything else, more than money, more than romance, more than family, more than health, more than fame, And when seeing his kingdom advance in the lives of others will ultimately give us more joy than anything else we could own. That's what the goal of the gospel is in our lives. It's when we see Jesus as greater than anything else the world can offer that we will then gladly let go of everything else to fully possess him. When we love others uh, like he loves us, We will willingly yield our possessions to see his kingdom come in their lives. Obedience that does not flow from love ends up being a drudgery, both to us and to God. The gospel turns that drudgery into a delight. Because it's him. It's him that matters. He makes life enjoyable and lovely and just joyful in all that he doves. Uh, Jesus himself put it like this in a parable he told in Matthew chapter 13 and verse 44. Jesus said this, 
He said, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that's hidden in a field, which a man found, and then he quickly covered it up. And then in his, notice, his joy, he goes and he sells all that he has, and he buys the field. Now, the treasure of the kingdom of heaven is Jesus. And when we see his true value, we are more than willing with joy to give up everything to follow him. But that will only happen when we truly see him for who he is. Hence, facets of Jesus. The reason for our series is to see Jesus Christ in beautiful, glorious ways. Now today, we are going to look once again, I I kind of warned you a little bit last week, we're going to look today uh, once again at the concept of logos. Because logos actually is so full-orbed, it's worth a second glance. So today, we're going to go down that path one more time, because there's more about this person called Jesus that I want us to see. And uh, may he fill our hearts with himself. Now, before we go forward, let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness and grace uh, in our lives. Father, if we understand the scriptures correctly, um, there was no hope in this world without you. But when you stepped into our lives and made yourself known through your son, Jesus Christ, and his finished work on the cross for us, there is not only hope, there's joy. There's not only hope, there's peace. There's not only hope, there's, there's excitement and purpose and meaning to life. And I pray today as we examine again this beautiful person called Jesus that maybe our hearts will be strangely warmed by the work of the Spirit in us. I pray, Father, for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So in order to get us a little way down the pathway uh, for Logos, let me just kind of reiterate a little bit what we talked about last week because the philosophers we looked at last week were actually built upon by later philosophers. I'll explain what I mean. So Logos is a title given to Jesus Christ and it's only used about a half a dozen times in all of the Bible with the capitalization of the word, word. And it was John, the writer of the Gospel of John, as well as 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, ultimately the book of Revelation, who gives us this title for Jesus. It says, in the beginning was the what? The Logos. And the the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God, and the Logos became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld his glory. Glory is of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. So... John grabs this word out of Greek philosophy, this term logos, and he applies it to none other than Jesus. Now, last week, and again, I'm just going to quickly uh, pull this all together to get us going forward. Last week, we talked about how John was actually living in the city of Ephesus. This is a picture of the temple of Diana or the temple of Artemis, depending on if you're Greek or Roman and your view of the gods. Uh, One of the eight wonders of the world. John was writing from this city, and in this city there was a famous philosopher, a pre-Socratic philosopher by the name of Heraclitus. He lived 500 years before John wrote. And so Heraclitus was kind of like a local guy made good. He was a well-known guy that everybody respected because he seemed to have an inquisitive mind. So 500 BC, Heraclitus, the thinker, often referred to as the weeping philosopher, had thoughts wrapped around why, as he observed nature, why, as he observed uh, humanity, were there all kinds of apparent paradoxes and multiple meanings and tensions in the world around him. 
And so he was looking at all these things, and yet it seemed in spite of all of these tensions, there was something holding them all together, making them all possible. It was giving them meaning and purpose. This is how he was dwelling on those things. And he ultimately called this unique force, as he saw it, the Logos. This is one of, the, uh, extra, one of the writings that survived from his time frame. We don't have a lot from Heraclitus. But one of the things that he said was this idea that all things ultimately come into accordance with this thing called the Logos, the very word that John would grab 500 years later and apply to the person of Jesus Christ. So Heraclitus kind of began this thinking from Greek philosophy wrapped around this concept, this, this idea called Logos. A man who took it another step further was a man uh, by the name of Pythagoras. Yes, the famous mathematician was also considered the father of philosophy. And so uh, para, uh, Pythagoras, who saw the universe as a complex yet orderly system, called the, uh, the universe the cosmos, a well-ordered whole, the opposite of what would be chaos. So rather than seeing all things in chaos, he rather saw things as a cosmos, a well-ordered whole. The universe was holding together a unity in diversity, that's what universe means, was holding together, and that which held it together was the Logos. So between Heraclitus and Pythagoras, they developed an understanding around the Logos, that the Logos is this underlying, unifying principle behind all things. And then we talked about how that is applicable to Jesus how Jesus is ultimately unifying all things ultimately to himself. And again, this is a quick walk over last week. It says this, by him all things, Paul said in Colossians uh, chapter 1, by him, Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth. That which is visible and that which is invisible, whether it be thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him, Jesus, all things hold together. Absolutely everything that, that is in the universe is ultimately being held together by the person of Jesus Christ. Sin, by definition, is separation. And so we have an entire universe that's running away from itself. And the only thing that's holding things together to keep them from ultimately dissolving is the power of Christ. He is ultimately holding all things together, and he's ultimately going to bring all things together. How is he going to do that? By the cross. For in him, Paul goes on to say, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile, that is to bring back to himself and make things right to himself. All things, whether they be on earth or in heaven, ultimately making peace by the blood of the cross. Again, we look at the cross as a moment in time that was for our salvation. Amen. But ultimately, the power of the cross is not only for our salvation, it's for our sanctification. That's what the gospel here is about, a growing affection for Jesus Christ. But it's also about our glorification, but it's also about the renewal of the earth in the eternal state. It's all the power of the cross that will make all of that happen. And so when the end comes, the beginning of the eternal state, 
we have this statement from Paul. When all things are subjected to him, this is God the Father, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the Father, who put all things in subjection under him, the Son, that God may be all in all. Jesus is the ultimate, great, underlying, unifying principle behind all things. And all God's people said, oh my gosh, just a tiny facet of his glory. This is who we're talking about. It's not simply the man, Jesus Christ. He did become man, hallelujah, for our salvation. But this is God, the second person of the Trinity, who in eternity past planned this whole thing from its inception to its conclusion, and it's all within his power. And he's working all things to the ultimate ends which God has predetermined. So, that is one aspect of Jesus being Logos. But as we move forward in trying to understand how this thought continued to develop prior to John's writing through the additional philosophers who came along after Heraclitus and Pythagoras, we now come to what is known as the Big Three. And so what they discovered is this. That the Logos is, is, if you will, a soul or a reason or logic that is inherent in the creation itself. Let me explain. So again, after Heraclitus came uh, Pythagoras. After Pythagoras came Socrates. And after Socrates came Plato, and after Plato came Aristotle. Again, the big three uh, Greek philosophers. These men, along with the later Greek Stoics, developed an understanding that the universe itself was a living entity. They would look at a person, a man, and they would say, a man is composed of many aspects and parts, and yet they're a unifying whole, and the man's thought is what ultimately controls his body. This is the conception that they had of the universe. The universe is all kinds of independent pieces and parts, planets and trees and bees and all this stuff, but they saw them as a united whole, not unlike a body, and there was this mind, this soul to the universe that gave it its sense of logic, its sense of reason, that brought to it a sense of rationality. So this is how they perceived of this thing called the Logos. So when, in, in kind of a, a thoughtful way for today, they saw the Logos as all-wise, though impersonal, kind of a mind and a soul of the living world. Think of Star Wars. You know the Force? The Force be with you? The Force didn't have a relationship. It was just there, and it seemed to empower things. That's somewhat like what the Greek philosophers thought concerning Logos. He was like, it was like a force. But this force, this reason, this logic, made the universe, and here's the key, consistent, rational, even intelligible, and ultimately knowable. You see, if all things were merely random, there could be no scientific method. The scientific method says this, we are going to do something and we are going to observe something and it's going to be repeatable so that we can ultimately understand through reason and understanding what there is to know about this. They likened that reason or that consistency or that knowability to what the Logos gives to the universe. 
Now that seems a little out there, seems a little weird. Let me kind of rein it back in and we'll apply it to Jesus and then to us. In a very real way, the Logos ultimately makes all things knowable. Without the Logos, this force, this consistent, rational, intelligent um, aspect to the universe, things could not be knowable. And so today, entire areas of scientific thought lend themselves to the Logos. Let me show you what I mean. So today, we have these things called ologies, right? Ology, ology. Give me an ology. Psychology. Psychology is the study of the psyche, okay? Give me another one. Biology. Biology is the study of life. Give me another one. Mythology is a study of myths. Okay, so what I want you to see is if we went through all the ologies, we'd be here until tomorrow. There's just hundreds of these things. But the word ology means the study of something or the ability to know something. And that's possible only through the ology, which, by the way, is, is a wrong use of this, this uh, ending. It actually is not ology. It is actually logi, which is, comes from the word logos. So every time we talk about an area of knowledge, an area of study, the science of something, what we're basically saying is it is only possible to know anything in any of these areas because of the logi, the logos, which brings reason and comprehension, which gives to everything consistency and a rationale so it can be studied and it can be known. That's Jesus. You know, think of scientists today. <laughs> Just think how humbling it would be for them to have to acknowledge that, you know, the, the whole reason there's even this thing called science is because of Jesus. It, doesn't, it wouldn't exist without Jesus because everything would be in chaos and you could never study anything. You know, it's interesting. Back in the days of the philosophers, the philosophers were men of philosophy, they were men of science, and they were men uh, of theology or, or men of religion. In their minds, those three disciplines were united in such a way that they should never be taken apart because they're all interconnected. Today, we have, we have science, which wants nothing to do with, with, with uh, all those other things. And, and, and today, we have philosophy, which wants nothing to do with science or religion. And we got religion over here saying, but, but guys, none of that makes any sense without Jesus. So years ago, that wasn't a problem. Today, we've become so sophisticated, we've become foolish, not realizing that the very reason that those other things even exist is because of Jesus, the Logos. So the Logos, as it was pushed down in Greek thought, and John chose to use and apply to Jesus, is not only that the Logos is, if you will, the underlying unifying principle behind all things, that Jesus is ultimately going to bring all things to completion in himself and offer it up to the Father at the end of time. But also, the Logos is soul, reason, and logic. It reveals to us things that we could not know apart from what the Logos gives to us in consistency, rationale, making things intelligible and knowable. Now that's true not only when it comes to the birds and the bees and in the study of nature and even humanity, but the Logos gives us one other area of observable knowledge that we could not truly understand without him. 
And Jesus, the Logos, makes theology possible. The study of God. Theos, God. Without Jesus, God is a two-dimensional being to us. Because in a very real way, you look at nature, and Paul tells us in Romans chapter 1, that nobody, everybody's without excuse before God, ultimately, because what can be known of God in his power and his intelligence is observable through nature. So we know that God is powerful. We know that God is intelligent. Just look at nature. When you get to the commandments in the Older Testament that God gives to the nation of Israel, those commandments show us that God is holy and he is just. But it's only when you get to the Christ, Jesus, that God becomes flesh. And all of a sudden, we now have a three-dimensional view of who God is and how he would interact with differing peoples through the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus makes God three-dimensional, makes him knowable, allows us to study God and to know God, allows us to even create a science of God called theology. That's what Jesus does. I I love, uh, again, the way uh, John put it, He says this, and the word, the Logos, became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now he goes on to say this, John does in John chapter 1, for the law was given through Moses, those commands, the knowledge of God's holiness, the understanding of judgment and condemnation and justice, but grace and truth ultimately comes to us through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. But the only God, Jesus, who is at the Father's side, he's made him known to us. How do you know God? How do you know how he would react? How do you know how God would interact with various peoples in various situations at various times? Look at Jesus. Read his life. Watch him. What does he do? He's making the Father known to us. What is God like? Look at Jesus. In fact, that's what Philip's challenge was. John chapter 14, in verse 6, which is just prior to this, says, uh, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So we all know that verse. But just after that verse, he said this. If you had known me, talking to his disciples, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him, and you have seen him. Good old Philip. Philip said to him, Lord, um... Show us the Father, and it's enough for us. We, 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 we would be good with that. And Jesus said to him, wait a minute. Have I been with you so long that you do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen what? That's right. How can you say, show us the Father? You see, Jesus is the Logos. He is that which gives the understanding of various areas of knowledge. He provides science with their scientific method. He gives understanding to all things so that they can be knowable. But above all, he came to make God knowable. That is who the Logos is. In fact, again, Hebrews. Hebrews continues this thinking. Hebrews chapter 1, the book of Hebrews opens like this. Long ago, long, long ago, and it's planned far, far away. No, no, no. Long ago, yeah, Star Wars, man, uh, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Yes, he did. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is, notice, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Oh, Jesus, oh, Jesus, show us the Father. Oh, Jesus, 
Oh, Jesus, make real the Father. Again, I love Paul and his simplistic words here in Colossians 1.15. He is the what? Of the... Want to know what God looks like? Want to know how God interacts? Do you want to know how God sees people who are broken and burdened? Do you want to see how God sees the sinner? Do you want to see how God interacts with, with people who are far from him? Read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Read the Gospels. Can I just say, there are 66 books in our Bibles, and the Gospels take up only four little books, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They take up about this much of our Bibles. So let me just say this. If you never get around to reading the Bible, read the Gospels. Because you're going to find out a whole lot about God in those Gospels. You're going to find out what God's like. You're going to understand what God wants. You're going to understand how God's heart is broken by things. All that through Jesus, who reveals to us God the Father. And so we see Jesus come on the scene, and we see him doing incredible things. Like he comes to a group of people who are broken and battered by life. The very people that the religious elite said, you know, these are the offscouring. These are the sinners. These are the people we keep far from God. And Jesus said this, blessed are the poor in spirit. In other words, blessed are those who are broken by life. For theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. What? No, these are sinners. Blessed are those who mourn, those who have lost loved ones, for they shall be comforted. No way. No, God's not interested in that. Oh, actually, blessed are the meek, those who have been overwhelmed by life, for they shall inherit the earth. What? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, those who long for justice in a world of injustice. Blessed are the merciful, those who have compassion and want to help those who are in need. Blessed are those who are pure in heart, looking for God. Blessed are those who are peacemakers, looking for peace, because you will find it in God. Now, what Jesus is saying is this. They are so broken and so burdened and so hurting and so hindered by life. They're ready for the grace of God. They're ready to receive him. They're ready to embrace him as, as who he says he is. We move on just a little bit later in the scriptures and we see the broken heart of God. The broken heart of God for the city of Jerusalem. Jesus said this in Matthew 23, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills its prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children as hens gather their brood under their wing, and you're not willing. The day is coming where Titus is going to come. He's going to kill everybody. But I would have received you if you would have just come to me. You see the heart of God. And you also see the anger of God in Jesus Jesus said in no uncertain terms in Matthew chapter 23, seven times to the Pharisees, the religious elite, the scribes, those very people who were hypocrites and stood between him and the people who needed him. He said, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs with outward appearances. You seem to be beautiful, but within you are full of dead men's bones. You are unclean. And so outwardly you appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? Whoa! I thought God sent his son into the world not to condemn the world, but the world might be saved through him. Yeah, he did. But those who stand between people in a relationship with God, he will come down. So what we see is this person called Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, who encased himself into a humanity and literally walked in flesh. And he ultimately is the ology, 
behind God, the theology, the one who makes him knowable, the one who gives to him a, a, a sense that we can know and understand. He makes him knowable. I like what Philip Yancey says. You know, the more I read Philip Yancey, there's another man I, I would like to highly recommend, the more I have found a, a compatible soul with my own. Philip Yancey is a, a, a wonderful Christian author and man. He said this, um, when he was writing his book, The Jesus I Never Knew, he grew up in fundamentalist churches, you know, evangelical churches, and then he went back to the scriptures because his heart was so bothered by what he saw. He, so he said, the Jesus I never, he said, one of the things that struck me about Jesus was the people, the people that we would expect to be repulsed by him, prostitutes, tax collectors, the poor, the outcasts, the lepers, they were actually very attracted to Jesus. He says, I'm sure none of them thought, well, if I go to Jesus, he'll approve of my behavior. Jesus, Jesus had very high moral standards. No one questioned that. But somehow Jesus was able to convey a respect for them, a compassion for them, a love for them, even though he would have disagreed with the choices they made. On the other hand, the very people that you would have expected to embrace him, the scribes, the scholars, the Pharisees, and the high priests, the religious, they were the ones who rejected him and were responsible for his execution. Fascinating. Fascinating. And yet I think Yancey's on to something when he says this. Grace, grace like water, always flows to the lowest place. Think about that. Grace like water, always flows to the lowest place. Grace reaches down and it touches the humble, the broken. Of Matthew chapter 5, the Beatitudes express people who have been broken and hurt and wounded by life and they are ready, so ready for grace. The people who are broken and people who are burdened, grace finds them and affirms and loves and forgives and gives righteousness to them through Christ. But grace spurns and but grace spurns and condemns the proud and the powerful. It's amazing to behold God's grace in action in Jesus through the scriptures. Grace, like water, always flows to the lowest place. Still amazes me 
Apostle Paul, in his concern for the people of God, gives us this prayer. It's found in Ephesians chapter 3. But Paul says this for them and for us today, these words. He says, For this reason I bow my knees 
before the Father. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. That according to the riches of his glory, here's Paul's request, that he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts, not your heads, but your hearts through faith that you, being rooted and grounded in this love, might have strength to comprehend with all of the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. How do you know that which surpasses knowledge. There's only one way. It's Jesus. You see, you can only know so much with your brain, but the heart has a much greater capacity to know God than the brain will ever have. And so while there is an intellectual understanding of who Jesus is and what he has done, it is meant to move beyond merely our intellect and go down into our hearts and expand in our chest to the point where we're in love with this one. We're overwhelmed with his beauty, of his grace and his understanding. And that he would even look on me and want me. Not just to be a servant, but to be a son. Not just to be here, but to be there forever with him. There's only one way. His name is Jesus. And I just want to say, and I have so much more I could say, but I'm not going to, because I simply want to put this before you. Jesus said this, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavily laden. You see, these are the broken and hurting people of life, those ready to receive grace. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavily laden, and I will give you rest. We like that word, rest. In other words, he's saying stop trying to earn grace. Stop trying to assuage guilt. Stop trying to earn righteousness through your efforts. Instead, I want you to behold love. Love, herein is love, not that you love God, but that he loved you. And he gave his son as a suitable sacrifice for your sin. Behold your forgiveness. Behold your righteousness. Behold your Savior. Behold your Lord. Behold the King of Kings. Behold the Logos. Jesus went on to say, not only come to me and rest in me, but he said, I want you to take my yoke upon you. A yoke is an instrument that harnesses animals together so that they walk together. And Jesus says, now I don't want you just to come to me, but I want you to follow me. And more than that, I want you to learn from me. Read the Gospels, read the Gospels, read the Gospels, read the Gospels. Learn of me. Get to know me so intimately that you understand life cannot be lived apart from me. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into that same image from one degree to another as we behold Him in the Scriptures, as we see Him in the Scriptures, as we hear Him in the Scriptures, as we watch Him in the Scriptures. 
and then we obey him. And obedience is its own knowledge. You will have understandings of Jesus that nobody else will ever have if you would learn to obey him. He will show you beauties of himself that you could never have found simply by reading the Bible, but in actually obeying him. And my goal, my goal, my goal is this. That I would completely lose my life for him. Paul put it this way in Philippians chapter 3. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth the surpassing worth, the surpassing worth, the value, the incredible value that Jesus alone has. Indeed, I count everything as loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Christ as my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count it as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, but in righteousness that comes from the law, but one that comes through Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings. You want to know God? You want to know God? Come to Jesus. Put your full rest and trust in him. Be yoked to him. Follow him. Learn of him through the scriptures. Obey him and be willing to suffer the loss of all things. And you will discover that in him, is everything you ever desired. That, my friends, is what it means to know him. To truly, truly know him. It's not just here. It's here. It's an affection that overwhelms your life and says, here I am, Jesus. Please, do anything you want with me. Just reveal yourself to me through the process. Because I want more of you, Jesus. I just want more of you, Jesus. I just want more of you, Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, again, for making yourself known through your son, Jesus. He has fully exegeted you through his life, his death, his resurrection. Thank you so much for a risen Savior and Lord, a leader of our lives who longs to reveal himself to us through obedience and even the willingness to suffer. Please, oh God, give us that grace. It's something we can't earn or deserve, but it's something we can ask for. Give us that grace that we would know him deeper and deeper and deeper, I pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. God bless you.